Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Okay, you all can open your Bibles, please, to the book of Joshua. And we'll be reading from Joshua chapter 11. Today, there are white paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you if you did not bring a Bible with you. And you can get that out, open it to page 107. (coughs) Excuse me, 107, that's where Joshua chapter 11 is. Uh, I want to give special thanks to those who participated in putting on our Porn Kills seminar or conference this past weekend, Friday night and Saturday night. Uh, We had people here in this sanctuary hearing about uh, that issue, and it was a very edifying, instructive, and helpful conference. Uh, It always is, year after year, and um, it took a lot of people combining efforts in the sound booth and our hospitality team and uh, from many other sources getting that together and organized. So thanks to all of you for that um, really fantastic conference, and I hope that you will mark your calendars for the first weekend in November of 2019 because uh, we're hoping to do this again then and I would love to have more people for that conference so thanks to all of you who helped out with that. Again we are in Joshua chapter 11 today. Um, Many of you know that we are living in a a world that is a, a changing world And uh, one of the things that has changed for us as Christians is the way we go about defending the truthfulness of the Christian faith. Um, There's been a big shift in that process. It used to be years ago that what Christians would have to do is answer the question, does God exist? Now, of course, still people ask that question, and we have to think about that and be able to defend that, but that's really not the most pressing questions that Christians have to deal with today. It's not so much, does God exist? It's a different question. And the question is this, is God good? Is God good? Because the charge is that if the God of the Bible exists, if God is who the Bible says he is, he doesn't seem like a God that I would want to worship. That's the way a lot of people feel. That's the way they articulate it. What they would say is, God is immoral. And even if he does exist, I'm not going to worship him. That's what a lot of people are saying. And exhibit A for that claim is the presence in the scriptures in the Old Testament of holy war, holy war. And we see this in many places in the scriptures and in particular in the book of Joshua. And we have now reached Joshua in this sermon series which we're calling Route 66. Um, We are seeking to go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, one sermon per, per Bible book and we have now reached the sixth book of the Bible, and it's called Joshua. It's named after the man who came after Moses as a leader of Israel. And so let me, as I have been doing, give you a little background information on Joshua who wrote the book. We think it was maybe Joshua, although scholars have different opinions about that. Written probably about 1300 BC. Some of the significant events in the book of Joshua include 
Rahab and the hiding of the spies, crossing the Jordan River, the fall of Jericho, the miraculous event where the sun stands still, division of the land later in the book. Those are some of the most well-known stories in the book of Joshua. But the theme of Joshua from start to finish pretty much is, is this. It's the theme of conquest. That is Israel entering into this promised land, the land of Canaan, and conquering it through warfare. Israel goes in and they take the land. And as we read, and as I'm about to read to you, you're going to notice there are some very unpleasant details in these depictions. And they might be details that as Christians we frankly wish weren't there. And we might find ourselves a little bit embarrassed, actually, that these kinds of things appear in the scriptures. And they raise some very big questions like, is this what I think it is? Because it sure looks to me like it's ethnic cleansing. Is this justifying violence? Does this make violence okay? How do we reconcile what we're reading in these passages with all of the passages we see in the New Testament about pursuing peace? How do these two things go together? And I want to make it very clear that these are good and legitimate questions. If you were to ask these questions, you're not asking them because you want to be a troublemaker. These are good questions. Anybody thoughtfully reading the Old Testament ought to ask these questions. And what we find is that this is part of the story. And this is what we're looking at, the story that God is telling about reality and about truth and about him and what he has done to save us. And um, I don't want to brush over these details and, and hide from them. Uh, I, I want to deal with them. And I think that you'll find that there are good reasons to receive this passage, these parts of scripture, and uh, to have your faith and confidence in the goodness of God actually reaffirmed. And that's what I hope will happen here this morning. So Joshua chapter 11, if you want to stand, I'm going to read the whole chapter. If you're able, if you want to remain seated, that's okay. It might take a couple minutes here for me to get through this chapter. But I will start with verse 1, Joshua chapter 11. It says, When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and in um, Nephoth, um, Nephothdor, you're going to have to be patient with me with these names, there's a lot of them here in this chapter, on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mitzpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight with Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. 
And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Mitzrafoth Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mitzpah. And they struck them, and he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword, for Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn except Hazor alone, that Joshua burned, and all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder, but every man they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses." So Joshua took all that land, the hill country, and all the Negeb, and all the land of Goshen, and the lowland, and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel in its lowland, from Mount Halak, which rises towards Sire, as far as Baal Gad, and the valley of Lebanon below, Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings, and struck them, and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all these kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Father, open our eyes by your spirit to behold wonderful things, even in a passage as difficult as this, wonderful things in your word. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So, what do we do with this? It's disturbing, isn't it? It's, it's, it's troubling. What I want you to, to do today is to consider three things with me uh, to help us understand what's happening. And the first is this, consider the unique calling of Israel. Consider the unique calling of Israel. Who is Israel? Let, let's just ask that question. Let, this is a little bit of review. We, we've been uh, hearing about Israel throughout this story, going down Route 66. Remember, they are the nation that God called into existence by first calling Abraham. That was back in Genesis chapter 12. And in that chapter, God promised to Abraham that he was going to give him a land, that this people, this nation, God was going to place in a land, a homeland. And 
so we've been seeing through these maps exactly what's been going on. So the map on the left is the map that I've been showing you the last few weeks. So you remember that Israel was enslaved in Egypt, that God miraculously delivered them, and so they went on this route to the promised land, and the promised land is up here. Promised land, land of Canaan, same place. Israel is uh, on their way. They get kind of stuck in the wilderness. We read a lot about that in the book of Numbers. And eventually, though, they make their way all the way right up to here. And um, this is the Salt Sea, this sea right here, and that's the same sea that's pictured right here. And so Israel is right here at the edge of the Jordan River. This is the Jordan River here. And so in the book of Deuteronomy, this is where uh, God, through Moses, speaks to the people to kind of give them a, a pep talk and get them ready to go into the land. That's what we, what we talked about last. So now let's go over here to this map. So this map on the right is just kind of this area blown up. So here comes Israel. Here's where they're camped, kind of in this area. Again, here's the Jordan River. And what we see in the book of Joshua is Israel crossing that river, so very famous story there early in the book of Joshua, and they eventually get to Jericho. That might be hard to read, but that's Jericho right there, and so uh, the fall of Jericho is in Joshua 6, and in the subsequent chapters, we read about uh, a couple chapters about the battle of, uh, for Ai, or Ai, so there's, there's what this city is, and then we see Israel taking much of the promised land in the southern part of the promised land, and we see that in chapter 10 of Joshua. And what I have just read to you in chapter 11 is the taking of the northern part of the promised land. And so uh, this line here depicts what we have just read going all the way up to this city called Hazor. And we heard quite a bit about Hazor here uh, in this particular chapter. So let's just take a look at that. I mean, just to remind you, I'm not going to belabor the details. I think you got the point, but verse 10, uh, looking at Hazor, Joshua turns back and uh, finds the king and strikes him down with the sword, but not just the king. It says, all in it, all in it, everybody was killed. That's in verse 11. Not just the king, but everybody. They were devoted to destruction. None were left, there were no survivors left, everyone breathing, everybody alive was, was killed. Uh, the verse goes on, verse 11, to say that Hazor was burned with fire, whole city destroyed. Verse 12, then all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured, struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, Moses the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Um, you know, maybe most troubling in this passage, particularly for animal lovers, is you know, what we saw earlier here in verse 9, that the people of Israel were called on to hamstring the horses. And so the reason for this is because the horses were pulling these chariots, and this is one of the most intimidating and effective military weapons of this day. Soldiers coming in chariots being pulled by horses, and so if those horses could be hamstrung, they would be incapacitated. The soldiers or the riders of the chariot would then have to jump off and flee on foot, and it would give Israel a greater chance of um, capturing those soldiers. And we might note that the horses weren't killed. God didn't command that in, in this case. I don't know if that's 
a mitigating circumstance or not, but they were allowed to survive, but nonetheless, they, they were hamstrung. So what, what do we do with all of this? I mean, there's all sorts of different responses, a lot written about what's going on here. What some people say would be something like this. Some people just say, well, you know, war was a lot more common in that day. It was a much more primitive and barbaric society, and so things aren't like that today. And so we just have to realize that those people were very different at that time. Now, there's a certain amount of truth to that. It is true that there was a lot more warfare during that time, and things were, I think, probably more barbaric. Although if you go online, you can find maps of the number of ongoing conflicts in the world today, and you'll find that the world today is not a whole lot different from them because there's a lot of armed conflicts and battles and wars going on right now. But the temptation that we might have as we read this and, and think just simply that this comes from some bygone barbaric day is to think, you know, well, I wouldn't have done that. But friends, we are all influenced by the culture in which we live in ways that are far beyond our ability to comprehend. And I would suggest to you, men in particular, that if you lived in Israel during this time, you'd be fighting too. You'd be taking your sword and going into battle and killing people. I mean, let's not look at this with this kind of holier than thou. I mean, these people were awful, horrible, immoral people, but I am above it and I would never do that. Uh, I, I think that's giving yourself a little more credit, maybe. All of us have sinful hearts. All of us, I think, are prone to do things that we don't think we actually could do. So. Um, was, more, was war more common in that day? I mean, yeah, that, that's true, but I don't really think that you know, totally solves the problem. Fact is, war is still barbaric and, and difficult and gruesome. Uh, so here's another way people will deal with this. They will say, well, the Old Testament is not for us today. You know, the Old Testament was written for Israel, it was written in the past, and it's really not for us as Christians. Well, that's just a totally unacceptable response. I mean, all you have to do is read the New Testament and see how often the New Testament refers to the Old Testament. See how often Jesus refers to the Old Testament. How Jesus says, I have not come to overturn the Old Testament, I've come to fulfill it. I'm the, I'm the in the flesh embodiment and fulfillment of what was taught in the Old Testament. You don't get any indication in the New Testament that the New Testament has any kind of embarrassment about the Old Testament. The New Testament constantly quotes the Old Testament, never dismisses it, never, in, in fact, there are several places where Joshua and the Canaanites and this actual situation in Joshua are referred to in the New Testament as just something that happened. And the writers of the New Testament don't try to excuse it or dismiss it in, in the way we might feel that we should uh, today. And in any case, what really makes this disturbing, I think, is verse 15, because, I mean, even if we do say the Old Testament is not for us today, we still have what is said here in verse 15, just as the Lord commanded Moses, his servant, the Lord commanded it, and then Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did it, and Joshua didn't leave anything undone that the Lord had commanded. God is the one who commanded that this happen. That's what the passage says. So I don't think it helps to just throw out the Old Testament. 
So what I want to do here for the rest of the sermon is try to, try to explain this. And so one thing that I think helps is to consider the unique calling of the nation of Israel. Israel was what is called a theocracy. A theocracy is a society, a nation that is ruled directly by God. Now certainly there are nations today that would say they are ruled directly by God, but coming from a biblical perspective, I would say that that situation, that privilege of being a theocracy, being ruled directly by God like Israel was, was something reserved for Israel alone. God entered into a covenant relationship with Israel so that there was a union of church and state, you could say, in Israel that was entirely unlike any other nation ever in history. Israel's situation was totally unique, and the Psalms even say this. If you look at Psalm 147, God declares his word to Jacob his statutes and rules to Israel, and he has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. God has not related to any other nation in the way that he has related to Israel, and that was for a relatively short period of time in human history, and actually the conquest is even a shorter period of time, a smaller period of time of Israel's entire history. So we have Israel receiving a unique calling overall, and then we have a very unique task that Israel is called to do in conquering the promised land and doing what we have read about here in Joshua 11. Some, some ways this helps us is, is like this. This helps us, or this um, encourages us to be very careful about how we think about nation states today. Israel today is not a theocracy. The United States is not a theocracy. I mean, God is sovereign. God rules over all the world. He rules over all nations. But God does not rule directly over the United States in the way that he did over Israel. I mean, as much as we might want to claim to be a Christian nation, if by that you mean we're a theocracy, you're wrong. We are not a theocracy, and the wars that America has waged and might wage in the future, we cannot claim those to be holy wars. Now, they might be wars that are justified. I'm not going to comment on that. I'm just saying that's a possibility, and we all have different opinions on that, and that very well might be the case. I mean, I think World War II, I think, certainly could be justified, in my opinion. Uh, you know, maybe not everything that happened, but certainly... Um, the campaign itself, but we have to be very, very careful, and I think a lot of American Christians make this mistake of thinking that America is the new Israel, and that we have the same charge from God that Israel did, and we don't. And so we got to be careful about how we think of this theocracy. we got to be very careful about how we apply what we read in the Old Testament to today. And so that leads to my second observation, which is we need to be very careful about how we interpret the Bible because, quite frankly, we are not called to imitate everything that happens in the Bible. And this would be a perfect example of that. This does not give the church or Christians an opportunity to take up arms and weapons and wage battle against those who believe differently than us. 
This is a unique, specific command that God gave to one unique, specific nation in a very unique, specific time in redemptive history. It doesn't mean we're supposed to follow this or model this. I mean, as an example, remember Jesus in the Gospels told Peter to come out of the boat and walk on the water. Now, is that a command to everybody? If you're ever on a boat, I wouldn't recommend it. I wouldn't recommend that you step out of the boat and say, hey, Jesus said it to Peter, he's saying it to me. I can walk on water. No, you can't. You're going to sink. That was a specific command given to Peter, not to everyone, and there's a specific command given here to Israel that's not given to all nations. So that's the first thing. Consider the unique calling of Israel. The second thing is this. Consider the unique nature of God. Consider the unique nature of God. He is, first of all, a God of peace. So let's not forget that as we read this passage. Let's not forget what the rest of the Bible says. Jesus is the prince of peace. Jesus speaks to his disciples and says, blessed are the peacemakers. Paul says, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. The Bible calls us as his people to be peaceful people, to make peace, to be representatives of peace. And quite frankly, we see that in this passage, how God is a God of peace. So let me show you that. But first of all, I have to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 20. You can turn there if you want, but in Deuteronomy chapter 20, there is a list of what are called rules for warfare. And God speaks to Israel and he says, here's some things. When you go out and fight, here's some things to keep in mind. And he says to his people, he says, first of all, this. You know what? If you have just built a house, you got a new home, you don't have to go. And he says, you know, if you just got married and you want to spend some time with your wife, you don't have to go. And in fact, he even says, if you're afraid and your heart is weak, and you don't want to go, you don't have to go. And then God says, and here's something I want you to do, Israel. When you get ready to go into battle, offer peace to the country, to the nation, to the people that you're about to enter into. Offer them peace. And if they accept that offer of peace, then you can spare them. You don't have to kill them. That they can be spared. They can be freed. Offer them peace and see if they respond. Now, Going ahead here to Joshua chapter 11. Look at verses 18 and 19. As it looks like Israel obeyed exactly what they were told to do in Deuteronomy 20. Verse 18, Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. But look at this, verse 19. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. The story of Gibeon is a few chapters earlier. We see how uh, Israel kind of came to, to protect Gibeon, actually, because they accepted the offer of peace. But all these others did not accept the offer of peace. Israel came and said, look, I don't, we don't want to do battle with you. If you'll be at peace with us, we'll be at peace with you. And they said, no, we're going to battle. Look at uh, verse 5. All these kings, they joined their forces and they came and they encamped together at the waters of Mer- Merom to fight with Israel. These nations wanted to fight. They were offered peace, but they rejected it. I mean, that should remind us a little bit of the gospel. I mean, that still, in a spiritual sense, is happening today. The gospel goes forth. Peace is offered 
to people. Peace with God is offered to people if they will just accept it. But so many people instead reject it and wage war on God. Spend their entire lives battling with him when peace is offered. And so spiritually we see a fulfillment to that uh, even today. So God is a God of peace. And we see that throughout the scriptures. But friends, God is also a God of judgment. He's a God of judgment. So before I get to that, first of all, I want to say that this is not an example of ethnic cleansing. I mean, a lot of people accuse these holy war passages of that, but, but it's not. This is not a case where God is saying, yeah, Israel, you are such great, wonderful people. You are the superior race, so I want you to wipe out the weaker, inferior races. That's not what's going on. In fact, God says to Israel in many cases back in Deuteronomy, it's like, look, you know, the reason you're my people really has nothing to do with how good you people are. You're a stiff-necked people, quite frankly, but you're my people because I love you, is what he says. But there's no sense that Israel should have any kind of racial superiority here. And in fact, what God does is he threatens the same penalties against Israel that these nations in Canaan get. So, for instance, if you look at verse uh, in Leviticus, God says this, speaking to Israel, You shall keep my statutes, Israel, and my rules, and do none of these abominations. And he's referring to the sins of the people in the promised land in Canaan lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. What God is saying there is, the same thing is going to happen to you, Israel, if you commit the same sins as the people in Canaan. God says, I'm not a God of favoritism here. I'll judge you just like I judge them. This is not an issue of ethnic cleansing or racial superiority. The issue is not ethnicity. The issue is morality here. The issue is morality, and the nations in Canaan were exceedingly morally degraded. Let me show you this in Deuteronomy 12. God speaking to Israel again. He says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. In other words, in the way that the Canaanites do. Don't worship me the way they worship For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. Every abominable thing. And then he gives an example. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fires to their gods. That's how morally degraded the society has gotten. They're taking their children and laying them on fire and burning them up in service to their gods. God hates that. God is a God of judgment. God does not have to tolerate that. Now, again, let me be clear. This does not give us a right to take up arms and go in and be violent with people who are morally degraded. We don't have that right, but God does have that right. He is the judge of all the earth. There is going to come a day when Jesus returns and judgment will be executed on the entire human race. And one way to look at this passage is to say, you know what this is? It's actually just a picture 
of Judgment Day. It's what God's going to do in the future. But what has happened is that the events of Judgment Day have intruded into the present just for a short time so that we can get a picture of it. And so here's what a guy named Christopher Wright says. In the final judgment, the wicked will face the awful reality of the wrath of God. But at certain points in history, such as the conquest, God has demonstrated the power of his judgment. That's what we're seeing here. The judgment of God is a powerful thing. And friends, really, the question that we ought to be asking is not why is God doing this to the Canaanites, but why doesn't God do that to us? Why isn't he waging holy war against us? Against America. For our materialism and our self-centeredness and our ethnocentrism and our killing of babies. Why aren't we being wiped out? You know why? Because God is merciful. And he is willing to restrain his wrath for a long, long, long time. In some cases, his wrath has intruded into the present and the Canaanites met with that wrath. But quite frankly, God is a God of unique mercy and that's our third point. Consider the unique mercy of God. Friends, not everyone in the land of Canaan was killed. Not everyone met with the same condemnation. Mercy was given to some. And one example of a person who received mercy was Rahab. Going back to chapter 2, Rahab, the one who hid the spies in faith, Hebrews 11 tells us, in faith she hid those spies. But in chapter 2 of Joshua, it says this, about what Rahab said to these spies from Israel. She said, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. We've heard about the Exodus. We heard what God did. I mean, isn't that fascinating? The people in Canaan knew what God had done for Israel. Word had been spreading about this great God, and even people in Canaan heard about it. A God who delivers and saves. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, for the Lord your God, you see what she's saying? Your God, the God of Israel, not the God of Molech or Baal or whoever we're worshiping here in Canaan. No, your God, he's the God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. Your God is the real God. Do you see what Rahab is saying? We heard about your gospel. We heard that God delivered you, that he saved you, that he has the power to deliver. And you know what? This is what Rahab is saying. I'm paraphrasing here, but I think what Rahab is saying. And I believe it. I believe in your God. I receive him. Your God is the true God. These gods in the land of Canaan, they're false gods. They can't do anything. Your God is great, and I believe in him. And Rahab was spared. Rahab met with mercy. And do you know what Rahab did for a living? She was a prostitute. Now, isn't that a unique mercy? That she, with all of her sexual immorality, would call on the name of the one true God and be forgiven and be saved? 
there, there was mercy for these people. There was mercy. They didn't accept the peace. They came out to fight. And the same is true today, friends. You have heard it. You have heard of a much greater deliverance. You have heard of the Exodus, but you've heard of a greater deliverance. You've heard of how God sent his son, Jesus, into the world to die on a cross and be raised from the dead to deliver you from your sins and to deliver you from the powers of death. You've heard of that. And now the question is, will you receive that and believe it, or are you going to wage war against it? Here's what it says in John chapter 3. Jesus says this, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. When Jesus came the first time, 2,000 years ago, he didn't come for the purpose of condemnation. He didn't come to wage holy war. He came to save. He came in peace. Remember, that's why he rode in on a donkey into Jerusalem. Donkey is a symbol of peace. He came to save, and he hasn't come back yet because he's merciful, and he wants people to come to him. But the book of Revelation will later tell us that Jesus is coming again, and when he comes again, he's coming on a horse. And a horse is not a symbol of peace. When Jesus comes at the end of the age, he is coming to wage holy war. And Revelation 19 tells us, it says in that passage, Jesus is coming again to make war. I mean, so much for this idea that the New Testament has nothing of the same thing as the Old Testament. It absolutely does. It says Jesus is going to come to make war. It says Jesus is coming with a sword. It says Jesus is coming bearing the fury of the wrath of God. And he is going to wage war against Satan against all of his minions, and against all of his followers. And he is going to destroy them all. In an example of holy war, that's going to make Joshua 11 seem fairly tame by comparison. But Jesus is also going to do something else. He's going to lay down his sword, and he's going to come to all of you who have trusted him, and he's going to wipe away your tears. And he's going to take you to himself. And he's going to show you mercy. That's what we ought to get from these holy war passages. Is God good? Yes, he is. He's very good. It's good that God hates evil. It's a good thing. And it's good that he wants to judge it. And eventually to destroy it. But it's also good that he has provided a way of escape. And it's a simple way. It's turning from your sin and trusting in this Savior because he is a wonderful and merciful Savior. And he will take you today and free you from his condemnation. And we're going to sing about that now, but let's pray first. Father in heaven, we um, come to passages like this um, troubled and bothered but God we know you are true we know your word is reliable and we thank you that in Jesus you have taken upon him all of the wrath we deserve so that we can stand assured of our place in heaven our forgiveness of sins and the righteousness through faith that we have in your son thank you for that in his name we pray amen